That's the one thing Bitcoin does really well is that it's it, it has these property rights that allow you to enforce the fact that you do own Bitcoin. And so that's what I'm most focused on is building a great wrapper and experience around that. Hello there. How are you all? It's, uh, it's about one in the morning here in Bedford. I've just got back from the football. We just beat Letchworth back on our winning run. And I'm having a beer. I'm completely wired from the game. Can't sleep. So I thought I'd record my intro for the show, which is coming out tomorrow. Danny's going to be happy I'm getting this done nice and early. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Sam Abassi, the founder and CEO of Hoseki. Now, Sam actually reached out to me because of the football club. Uh, we hold Bitcoin at the football club. We have a treasury and a float. The treasury is like our long-term Bitcoin, but we also hold a float for when we take uh, payments in Bitcoin at the club or online. And as part of the income reports I do every month for the club, I explained the money coming in and out, but I also wanted to show the balance of our Bitcoin. I wanted to be pretty transparent about that, almost like our proof of reserves, although because we're not holding anyone else's funds, it's less of an issue, but I just wanted to be transparent about it. And I was publishing our ZPub so people can prove it and check the balance of the addresses. And then Sam reached out to me and said, listen, our product, Hoseki, can do all of this for you. So seemed pretty cool. I had a good chat with Sam. He actually came down to a Bedford game. And I said, well, listen, we're going to be out in Austin. He was going to be there. I said, let's make a show. So Sam came in. We were going to discuss this kind of growing demand for Bitcoin as collateral. I mean, it's really easy to just sit on your Bitcoin and hang on to it like a Scrooge McDuck admiring it like gold. But there's growing opportunities to use your Bitcoin to access capital for things like mortgages. And that's only just the beginning. And anyone who has this thought of becoming a digital nomad will know that being able to show that you're financially sound opens doors. So how do you prove that? And this is where Sam and his company Hoseki came in. And, it, you know, I don't really like doing product shows, but what they're doing is so cool. I said to Sam, come on, let's make a show. But really, this interview didn't really go where I expected it. It was one of our early ones in this run we did in Austin. And it kind of just became this freewheeling conversation about a whole bunch of subjects, including healthcare, the importance of community, and having a Bitcoin mindset. Sam's just one of those guys. To be honest, I could just sit in a pub with him. You could put the mic on. We could chat for a few hours. And I could put that out as a podcast. He's a great guy. I love what he's doing. I love what Hoseki are doing. So I'm happy to get behind them. And I'm looking forward to getting the Hoseki product on our website. God, I'm rambling. You know, I'm rambling because it's like one in the morning. I should really be in bed. Anyway, listen, I hope you enjoy the show. you got any questions about it, anything else, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Hi, Sam. Hey, Peter. Welcome to What Bitcoin Did. Thank you. Good to see you again, man. Last time I saw you was... Three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Post, post win, post celebration. Well, I, that doesn't narrow it down for us. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You were uh, you were in London, and uh, we had a call, and I was like, "Dude, do you want to come down to Bedford and watch some football?" And you did. And look at you, you're now repping your gear. I'm all merched out. What is a uh, what is non-league British football like for you, man? I so I, I part of me expected some Green Street hooligan stuff. It wasn't quite that, but it was pretty <laughs> close. I mean, fans and players getting at it was uh, was amazing. And the refs as well. <laughs> yeah, God, uh, they're so. I don't know who or for whatever reason someone would want a referee at that level because they go out for ninety minutes, yeah, and everyone shouts and swears at them continually. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those uh, like thankless jobs. You do well, no one actually cares. But if you you know you mess up, everyone suddenly cares. <laughs> yeah, but like sometimes even when they're right, the opposite like they you know they'll call a foul. And the opposition team will be yelling at them, even though they're right. So, like, yeah. it is a thankless task, and we're lucky to have the people coming in. But 
Well, and those linesmen too. The linesmen were, you know, look like they're pushing sixty or something, but they were there for the love of the game. You could, you could tell. Well, that's the difficulty is finding enough people to want to do it, mm. especially at these lower levels. But it was good to see you down there. It's good to have you down to a game. Uh, it was a good win, and uh, we're gradually. I'm Bedford pilling people gradually. Yeah, I, I am too. Just by proxy, it's almost like a, I don't know. There's a, it's a whole, it's a whole world of pilling people. It's a new league soccer. Yeah, we need to get uh, Danny to a few more games. He's not been to enough. Um, <laughs> Anyway, look, it's been great to meet you. I've got to know you quite well, not quite well, but a little bit very quickly. Yeah. And uh, we had a good conversation. You told me all about your company. You're going to help us with something for the football team, which we'll get into. Um, but it's been great to get to know you and the product you're making. Uh, um, as soon as you told me about it, I was like, well, you've got to come on the show. And then, then you started telling me about your backstory. I was like, then you've definitely got to come on the show. <laughs> and so, look, there's a whole bunch I want to get into. I want to talk about, do you pronounce it Hoseki? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I want to get into Hoseki. I want to explain why the connection is, that what you're going to help me with. But, like, can we do your Bitcoin backstory? Because, as you said, this is like your second podcast um, and your first in-person one. Yep. And so a lot of people listening might not know who you are. And so if, if you know, if it's Sailor, we don't have to do that. If it's you know, if it's Max Kaiser, we don't have to. Everybody knows these people. But like when it's somebody who hasn't been on before, I, I just want to add context. So give people your your Bitcoin story. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess when I first heard about it, huh? Well, like a lot of people heard about it, didn't really think it was anything. I wasn't um, I wasn't into investing at the time. So this was 2014. Uh, an investment banking friend of mine told me told me about Bitcoin, but. When I was in college, I, I studied economics, but I was really interested in geopolitics and sort of like what the world looks like. Uh, so investing in an asset wasn't top of mind. My family comes from real estate, so it's like we don't have these really complex, high finance things that we know about or are taught and go into. It's more about just property management and real estate. Um, so I disregarded it, but 20, 2017 came around. Um, I, just, um, I had just left a PhD program in neuroscience and... Um, I wanted to continue that research element because I love doing research, uh, but you know I have um, I'm quite impatient. And neuroscience and basic science medical research really is designed to like, you know, uh, get drugs into the hands of patients, and that's like a ten year thing. So it wasn't very patient. Um, and then I saw this crypto scene. This is 2017, and um, you know I didn't have money to invest. I had a certain set of skills. I knew how to program, uh, and all of a sudden this world opened up to me. And that was in Miami. So this is before the whole crypto wave. Um, Miami is where I, where I was raised. Is where I'm from. So I got thrown into that. Um, this is you know again 2017 boom crypto crazy cycle. So I worked in that space for a bit. Uh, kind of understood what this technology is. Um, orange pilled myself throughout that process. Spent a lot of time at Ethereum conferences. A lot of time then at Bitcoin conferences. And then I could clearly sort of differentiate these two communities and yeah. what they're about. Um, that was very apparent pretty quickly. What stood out? What was the clear difference? Um, <laughs> maybe it's not so colorful, literally, in the Bitcoin space, which I appreciated. I went to uh, building on Bitcoin in 2018 in Lisbon, and I met Giacomo. I met the Blockstream team. I met a lot of these, like you know, cypherpunk people, uh, Sergey from BitRefill, and that uh, that message resonated a lot clear with me. The Ethereum scene was more of like a party scene, uh, more of like a yeah, like you know, a trust fund kid. Sort of uh, psychedelic infused party, which again is fine. That definitely has its place. Um, I enjoyed that to a certain extent, but the Bitcoin scene was a lot more serious. Yeah, the way I used to explain it was, as a Bitcoiner, I feel like I'm at Vegas in a meeting in a glass meeting room, seeing all of the crypto scene out partying outside. Yeah, yeah, and you want to go party sometimes. It, <laughs> it, it really is attractive, but um, I think different personalities, you know, kind of gear you towards different groups of people and. 
ultimately identify with the Bitcoiners a lot. A lot. It was. It was. It was a lot stronger. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I stayed in that space uh, up until 2019. Left to work at Fidelity. Um, cool. On Bitcoin research and development. So, like a lot of companies that have their own corporate incubator, um, I worked on open source self custody solutions. Um, looking at uh, Spectre, for example. So Stepan was incredibly helpful uh, with us. He came and did some workshops. Uh, and then I worked on proof of reserves there as well. A bit of lightning work, but uh, mainly it was open source custody and and proof of reserves. Um, Which led you, therefore, to Haseki. Yeah, it's sort of this, you know, when you look back, you realize kind of the stars always aligned. But yeah, yeah and now I'm here building a proof of reserves uh, so, platform. So I will get into that, but you I, you hadn't talked to me about your PhD in neuroscience. Well, I I, I didn't get the PhD, I left. Uh, yeah, but like you started on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, um, and the thing that stood out to me there is you said it's about getting drugs into the hands of patients. Yeah. Is that, is it, is there any part of that that you saw that was kind of, you felt that's unethical? And the, the reason I bring up the question is, is that, we don't have advertising for drugs in the UK. I think maybe they're like, you can do something like Nurofen. I think maybe I've seen Nurofen advertising. But when I come to the US, I've talked about this a lot. You put on the TV, the adverts come on, and there's you like there's a lot of adverts for drugs. And those adverts for me stand out in two ways. They're for conditions I've never heard of, with drugs I've never heard of. And then at the end, this dude speaks really quickly, telling you all the risks that like basically like your leg might fall off or some shit. And I... And it felt to me, I, I couldn't help but think, uh, are they inv- are they inventing conditions, or are they trying to treat conditions that don't really need treating? D- like, does the medical industry fail because of capitalism? Yeah, they fail I think the human. I, I mean, what you described is disgusting. It definitely yeah. is the environment here. Yeah, I mean, I think you know we live in a hyper capitalistic environment. Everything is commercialized. Uh, you're a consumer first and foremost. That's entirely what you've been designed to be since you were born, and in, in, in this in this uh, in this very short blip of history. Um, I didn't see so much of that in my research because my research was more about, you know, we were looking at uh, pulmonary complications, post-traumatic brain injury. So okay. what that means is uh, you ha- like have a motorcycle accident, you end up in the ER, but you actually die from lung issues, not from the brain bleed. Your brain started to bleed uh, and these things called inflammasomes develop. So when you hit your wrist or you hit your knee, it inflames because it's designed to protect that protective tissue around what it, where, uh, the site of injury. But after a point in time, it becomes destructive. It starts to eat that tissue. So that's why you ice it. That's why you take um, NSAID. That's why you want to you know, reduce that inflammation. That's the first thing you do. But same thing happens in your brain. So you're an elderly patient. You fall. You have now inflammation in your brain. But those proteins end up traveling into your lungs. And within that 24-hour period in the hospital, you usually end up dying from breathing complications, not from the brain bleed. Holy shit. I didn't even know any of this. Yeah. Can, so how do they prevent that? Um, well, that's the research we were doing, trying to figure out, they were trying <laughs> right, to develop okay. drugs in order to, in order to prevent that. But that, um, but that seems like ethical drug development. That seems important work. Yeah. Then it kind of gets into, you know, how do you define what's, which one's ethical, yeah. which one's not ethical. Um, but ultimately, and it was interesting too, because, and maybe this applies to research more broadly, but I think the people that I, that I, that I was doing the research with, um, they knew the conclusion before they had done all of the research ahead of time. So again, they they weren't leading the um, they weren't sort of leading the witness or anything uh, necessarily, but but and that was probably more of a pure example of of what maybe that sort of backwards research would look like. Right. But still, that existed. It's like, well, we we know the conclusion. Uh, now let's find supporting evidence to support that conclusion, and that seemed a bit backwards to get it through the FDA. Is it? 
Well, just to support the uh, just to support the uh, claim in this case. Right. Okay. Okay. So we assume that these patients are dying from pulmonary complications. We know there's inflammatory activity in the brain. Um, we also happen to have a drug company that can develop it for us. Uh, let's go f- and find the supporting research in order to make that happen. Right. So again, like it probably isn't the most egregious example in the history of drug development and research, but if that existed at that level, then it must exist at you know a much more egregious level in other places. Well, when you do the research, you look up the stats, I'm sure Danny can find it, but like the number of kids in the US who are on ADHD medication or yeah. the number of kids who are on um, anxiety medication, the number of people who are using Adderall, the the opioid deaths, like it feel it's always felt to me that like I'm a I believe in capitalism itself, but it feels to me the US version of capitalism when it hits the health system, it doesn't seem to benefit many people apart from the the drug companies and perhaps some of the doctors yeah. or the people within the system, but it doesn't benefit the customer. I feel like the customer is constantly getting fucked mm-hmm. here. And that's the thing that like stands out to me. Yeah, I mean it's a corporate system. It's uh, they call it corporatocracy or corporate socialism. I mean, you know, corporations are people in this country. That 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 I think gets to the essence of it. Um, but we have private medical in the UK. I I mm-hmm. have private medical care. I use a private doctor. You know, I I use the private system. But it it still feels different. It doesn't feel like people are trying to like when I go and see my private doctor, he isn't trying to get me to take drugs. He isn't trying to force drugs mm-hmm. on me. Yeah, you know, the I remember my last session with him. He it was all about lifestyle. Where I had all my blood tests done, um, my cholesterol was up. There was a couple of other things there. Some people listening would be like, "Just eat steak." Um, we went through it, and he was like, "I want you to make all these lifestyle changes and come back and see me in a month." So something goes different. Something goes wrong here in the U.S. Something different happens. Yeah, and I, I mean, it seems like they've been co-opted. I mean, these doctors yeah. get paid to speak at these uh, conferences. Um, it, it, it all does seem pay for play, and even if they don't realize it, it, it seems like it's seeped into their education at a core level as well. Um, but in the UK, the NHS seems like it's weaker and weaker, or is getting weaker and weaker every day, right? Yeah, I have a thesis on that. Uh-huh. Um, my thesis on that is the NHS um, is a wonderful institution. The idea behind it is brilliant. Um, uh, and I stand by that, whatever accusation comes at me, because you will find very few people in the UK, if you ask them, would you like to get rid of the NHS? Who would say yes? Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever situation you're in, if you've broken your leg, if you've been run over, if you've been stabbed, if you had a heart attack or a stroke, you will get seen. Mm. Now, emergency care is being stretched, but it's still available. Um, The waiting lists on certain conditions are significant. So if you have money, you should probably take up private health care because if you get cancer, there are some waiting lists and there are risks to you. But everyone will get seen. Nobody's going to have their entire financial uh, situation completely destroyed because they break a leg or you know they get run over or they have a heart attack and they don't have insurance. That is that is a great system to have, I think, in society. I think that that reflects a civil, developed society. But my thesis on why it's been stretched so much is because when the NHS was developed, the kind of things you were getting treated for. We didn't have these unbelievable Mm -hmm. kind of scanners and MRI systems. It was very basic care. Now we've had all the technological advancements in medical care. We've had all the developments in drugs, and the drugs are expensive. We're better at keeping people alive and fixing people, but that comes at a cost. 
And so that's an increase in burden on, on the NHS. But I think there are, I mean, I think most people you talk to in the UK, there are some very basic, easy changes you can make. Um, I think people should be aware of the benefits of having some private cover if you can afford it. My private health care, this will this will probably amaze you. So I have private health care. It costs me, for me and my children, with the most expensive care possible, uh, two kids, full cancer cover, immediately seen if you are, if it's discovered that you have cancer, it costs me £180 a month, which is about $180 now. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and so when I did my back in and I... Um, had the uh, to have a microdiscotomy from diagnosis to operation was three days. Now on the NHS, I don't know what it'd be weeks, months, Danny. I mean, I have no idea. You have no idea. And and when my son had his shins issues, he was dealt with with the doctor straight away in London. Now some people cannot afford one hundred and eighty pound a month or one hundred fifty, whatever it would cost sure. them. I mean, the average disposable income in the UK. Can you look that one up, Danny? Because I looked mm-hmm. yesterday. I can't remember if it's a week or a month. But it's about, I saw it was about one hundred seventy six pound a month. But I know plenty of people who can afford it and who don't have it, and they don't realize the benefit. One, they're going to have the benefit of having immediate care, but they're also going to take some strain off the the NHS. Um, But there are certain things the NHS could do better. They could charge for appointments, Hmm. just charge for appointments, because they have a real issue with people having appointments and not turning up. There are little things like they could do that. I think there could be a good, good mix. I think certain bits should be privatized, which is... Heresy to some people, but look, it, it, healthcare is a uh, is a complicated subject. I mean, but I think, think I think America has it. I think America you can get the best treatment in the world if you need, if you can afford it. You've probably got the best cancer treatments in the world, or some of the best. And a lot of people in the UK with cancer, especially kids, they've fundraised to go to the US to get treatment. It's a big thing. My friend, it happened to a friend of mine. His his son had. I can't remember what form of cancer, but he got treated in the US and you know survived. He's alive today, but that was a treatment he couldn't get in the UK. But I feel like outside of that, the US also has one of the worst health systems in the world in terms of the customer. Yeah. So what I'm trying to figure out is if that's a trade-off of the system. Like you know, we may have some of the best cancer treatment facilities in the world. Is that add a trade-off of having this consumeristic culture? Um, it might be. I think. It, I think it seems like it is. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Ledin, to the podcast. From savings and accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with recent events in the lending industry, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, and they are building out one of the best financial service providers in Bitcoin Now, they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation nonsense and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. They only support Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. Not only are they a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I love the service, love what they're doing, love the team, and pleased to be working with them. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known the team over at Swan for ages, Corey, Jan, Brady... And they're pulling out all the stops to make 
Pacific Bitcoin, a celebration of the Bitcoin community. And I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. I will be emceeing the conference along with my good friend Natalie Brunel and Stefan Navera. And there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. You know these people. Lynn Alden, Alice Gladstein and Preston Pish. It's going to be great. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and fun with some unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and they've loaded the conference with parties before and after the event. They're bringing together the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption, mining to lightning. Now, you do not want to miss the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. As I said, I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to PacificBitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com, PacificBitcoin.com and use the code PETER. Also, today we have Ledger. Now, recent events this year have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, And the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. The Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security of all Ledger products. And listen, I have been using Ledger products since 2017. Five years is crazy, right? And absolutely love everything they've done. They are my favorite wallet provider and they have absolutely crushed it this year. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting edge security, but they also offer fast withdrawals and some amazing VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Well, America seems to have the best of everything, right? Yeah. At, at a certain time. Let me the worst of a lot of stuff, too. But. Well, it's a lot of stuff. But like the, the way your capitalist system set up for investment and winners and losers yeah. and the culture of competition and you know, being the best, you know, Silicon Valley for a long time. I mean, pretty much the majority of the, the best tech companies are US-based, search engines, whatever. You get the odd outlier like a Spotify but generally speaking, the U.S. has got the majority of them, and and I think your system is set up to create winners and losers, and that's just the way it is. Whereas I think we're set up just to be kind of average. <laughs> yeah, and again, you get that massive spectrum when you have a system like that. You have people that outperform, you know, at an exponential rate, and then you have a lot that are suffering at the same time. So again, I just think it's a matter of trade-off. It's not really good or bad. It's just uh, it's what the system can offer to who and when. There was a long time where I wanted to come and live here in the U.S. because mm-hmm. I like it. I've been here. This is probably like my hundredth time here I come eight times a year I absolutely love it the people are great the food's great get treated really nicely made some great friends but there was always two things that put me off coming to live here permanently one was the health system because it just freaked me out because I didn't even understand it and trying to get your head around that it's a complicated pick when you're used to having one number to phone or one place to go 
to get treated and not cost you anything to come to the US system where I've heard, like I had a friend, his daughter hurt herself surfing. They phoned the wrong ambulance company and he got hit with a $2,000 bill or something. Yeah, yeah. Because he got the wrong one. Um, that, those kind of things freak me out. The other thing that put me off was um, the uh, the exit tax, if, if you ever mm. change your mind. Yeah, that's pretty extreme. Um, I don't know exactly what the rate is. Is it? I think it's like forty or fifty percent. Something, something like that. Something insane. Um, Did you find that average? Yeah, it was one hundred and seventy-five pounds a month yeah. disposable income. Yeah, I've been making this film in the UK about inflation, so I had to look that up. Okay. Um, because the cost of living is going up so much, it's like how much breathing room do people have? Uh, yeah, the average disposable income in the UK is one hundred seventy-five pound a month, which isn't much breathing room. And your insurance is one eighty or some. Yeah. So there are a yeah. lot of people who just don't have yeah. that. But there are also people who can. I, I know plenty of people who don't have it who could afford it, and they should have it because it benefits them. Yeah, and that will take the pressure off the system. The thing I've heard is that it's incredibly good if you have a life-threatening condition, but if it's something simple like getting seen, it's a pain in the ass. It's almost impossible. Yeah. So if, like, if you're stabbed, you'll be taken to the hospital <laughs> and you'll be treated immediately. If you yeah. have a heart attack, you will be treated immediately. But there are instances where they're like, we can't get an ambulance to that because there's pressures on the system. But that is true. Life-threatening, immediate things. Where if you have like my micro discotomy, the or my um, herniated disc, I I couldn't sit down when I had that happen. I had to be stood up or laying down because if I sat down, the the pressure on my um, disc was causing shooting pains in the leg, the sciatica, okay. which is unfucking bearable. I don't know what the wait time is, but you know, with something like that, or you know. Danny, you did your was your knee. Yeah, but that was in Australia. But if you were in the UK, if you went in and, got, and they said, "Yeah, your um, yeah, your operations in three months," you wouldn't be surprised, right? And not at all, no. And it was similar in Australia, to be fair. And they have like a private-public hybrid system. It's mm. quite confusing, but it actually works quite well. So if you do, it's like what you're sort of suggesting. If you go to the GP or whatever, you have to pay like I don't know, hundred bucks or something, and then they rebate you a certain amount. And when you get to sort of, I think thirty or thirty-one. You, if you earn over a certain amount, you have to get private health insurance, or they like deduct you in your tax. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So they expect you've got your shit together by thirty-one. Yeah. How old are you now? Thirty-one. <laughs> you've been hit with that. Well, I thought that was true. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I got private health care for the first time like last year or something. How much was is it? I think it's about four hundred dollars a month for me and my wife. Okay, what's well, that in pounds? That's, like that's not far. Two hundred and thirty, two hundred, or something like that. So, is it in some ways where you have to take out that insurance? Is that kind of like national insurance in the UK, but you're paying it directly rather than having it taken from your wage? No, it's still like you go direct to Booper or whatever and buy your... Oh, okay. So we have a tax in the UK called national insurance, which both uh, employers and employees pay. And I think it's... What's NI? Is it 12%? I have no idea. Have yeah, so I think as a company you pay... Every employer you have, employee you have, I think you pay 12% of their salary as national insurance. Mm. And then you pay as an individual. And I think they're trying to put that up recently. 13.25%. Oh, is that, is that an individual? Mm -hmm. Right. But anyway, so it's another tax. That's meant to pay for the national health service. Yeah. But what's, what's actually happened is it just goes into the big pot, big government pot of wastage. Is there any transparency on where those funds are used for? Fuck no. <laughs> Possibly. I fucking doubt it. I doubt it. Um, so, But kind of going back to what you were saying before, I agree that if you asked everyone in the UK, do you want to get rid of the NHS, 99% would say no. But I think most would say it probably needs to change. Yeah. it's There is a lot of bureaucratic waste. So my mum, uh, 
worked in the NHS. She was a nurse, mm-hmm. an incredible nurse, my mum. And uh, my, she's a bit like me. She she would say what she thinks. And she used to come home and just complain about all the middle management coming in with these fucking ideas and interfering. She's just said it, bu- it was bullshit. There is a lot of waste. Yeah. Uh, and also the other thing is it's a political – it's <laughs> – if you came in as a as a politician and said we need to uh, privatize the NHS, you will not get voted into power. Yeah. It's like a it's it's like an institution that we hold dear in the UK and we protect. And even at, there was a time when the Conservatives wanted to privatize parts of it, and the ac- accusation was that they're selling off the NHS to their corporate friends, which they probably were. Hmm. But but it's a very difficult thing to change in the UK. I think that. To, um that's something like that happened in the 90s with school, with public schooling, right? Wasn't there one political party in the UK that advocated for, um, I think it was, I think schools were all public then and they ended up privatizing it, going against public uh, public sentiment? No, we've always had a, I don't think so. We've always had a, no, you might be talking about. That'll be with the grammar schools, presumably. Yeah. So we've got, th- we've got three types of schools. We've got public schools, grammar schools, and private schools. Grammar schools are essentially public schools, which uh, are, Tend to be a higher standard. They almost tend to reflect the the private schools mm. um, in terms of the standard. But I, I don't know too much of the background, so we don't have any grammar schools in Bedford where I'm from. But I think I, I don't know. This was before my time, but I'm pretty sure it used to be like the smart kids go to grammar school. Yeah, and then a lot of those grammar schools became privatized. I'm not sure if they, mm. do you want to check that. I don't know if the private. Yeah, but basically, my uh, niece, I think my niece and nephew both go to a grammar school, and you have to. Do a te- I think it's called the, is it the nine plus or the twelve plus? There's a certain test you have to do to get in. The eleven plus. Eleven plus. So you have to you have to separate. So they separate the smartest kids to give them the opportunity to learn. Now some people, you know, like some people will be like, "Well, this is not fair. You're making an elite group of people." But yeah. <laughs> but sometimes that's okay because you want these. You want to get the best for these kids. You want to give them the best uh, education, the best people to to, to teach them. Uh, they still exist. Um, but I don't, I don't know about thing about privatizing them. Danny might find something. Yeah, the NHS up. almost seems like a like a national myth, and I love national myths. Yeah, that that that's at least how it comes across. It, it seems like it was something that was great, and people are clinging on to the idea that it was great, but it's no longer great anymore. Yeah, it's, and it's it, tough to good. shake that. I think you've I think you've nailed it there. Um, I can see as an outsider who doesn't use it anymore. I see the issues with it, but I also still love the fact that people. Have the opportunity to use it. They've also there's also there's other things that have uh, stretched into as as well as a lot of people figured out they could get paid more money by going through agencies. So a lot of mm. agency staff now work for the NHS, whereas it would have all been direct employees before. But the NHS needs the staff, and if they can't get direct access to the nurses and doctors, they have to go through these agencies where they pay a lot more money. So it's, it's it is a complicated matter. I do like the idea of universal healthcare. I know that goes massively against. Um, what a number of people, maybe libertarians, think, or certain Bitcoiners think, because of the problems that causes. But I, I, I like the idea that anyone can get access to healthcare, uh, especially the, the the least fortunate. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, it's one of those things I should probably give Stefan Avera and say, like, talk to me about this, because he'll have a great explanation as how you can have a different system which still supports uh, people who can't afford healthcare. So, I, you know, they're probably... Fine. I mean, some of this might be an issue of just nation states more broadly. There's just yeah. a lot of people in one place and we're all being held accountable for each other, but we don't really have a common point of connection. Yes. That's that's what I keep coming back to for almost any issue for the most part. Expand on that. 
I think we're all too big. I think um, nation states are, well, there've been nation states in the past, there've been empires in the past, but um, it seems like a con- it seems like a consequence of our post-industrialized world where, I mean, you can look at the US, for example. There's a lot of geography between us. Um, you know, I, I, like, I think we're as united as the Soviet Union was, you know, keyword on union. There isn't a whole lot of commonality between, you know, Florida and California, for example. All, almost like different countries. Texas and Massachusetts. These almost look like different countries. I think to a certain extent, it's because people are tribal and they're very community-oriented. And when you have too many people in one place, it doesn't function as well. And we try and duct tape things together to make it function, but it's kind of bursting. It's kind of leaking through all that. So, what's the population in the US? Is it 300 million? I think 360 or 70 million. 360 million. million. Well, that's that's a lot of people to try and centrally plan for. Yeah. Um, I've, I've traveled a lot around the US and the commonality is the language, but there is culturally, there's a lot of differences between somebody I've hung out with in Wyoming and somebody I've hung out with in Malibu. Yeah. I mean, they're fundamentally different people with completely different outlooks on life. Well, and to exacerbate the issue, you know, uh, New York and London have much more in common than New York and like Oshkosh or, you know, Des Moines, Iowa or some other place. Um, cities just have more in common than they do with their own kin in their own country. Um, do you think this is why it's been fracturing? Yeah. I, I, I think it's, you know, a multi-generational thing. It's not like, you know, this is, hap- this is happening in the last five years or last decade, last couple decades. Um, you know, I, I think things ebb and flow and we're naturally just going to move towards a more uh, localized sort of city-state model. I think it's, it's, and it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just, it, it seems like it's naturally getting to that point because these big countries are just breaking. Yeah. Sometimes I also think that maybe comes down to like your age as well because I'm older than you, I think. <laughs> um, I started to notice as I get older and I slow down, I want to spend more time locally in my community helping out and doing things within my community. Whereas I think you're young, you want to get out and see the world and yeah, move around and like meet people and go through exciting opportunities. Then you get a bit older and a bit wiser and you realize actually you can get most of what you need from your local community. Everything you've been taught to believe that you should want to get out of life doesn't really make you happy like you think it will. Like I, I'm happiest on a Tuesday night going down to Allen Park and watching my daughter train football and being amongst the community and watching all these kids play football and hang out. That's where I'm my happiest. But I used to think I'd be my happiest getting on a plane and flying to uh, California and making a podcast and then going down the beach. And it was fun at the time, but I realized that like, it's, it's not fulfilling. Yeah, it's seemingly attractive, but I think once you do it and once you do it enough, you realize it's actually, and I'm not speaking to your example specifically, but a lot of these things are actually quite empty. Um, I think it's a natural human inclination to want to be around your community. It's like we're tribal, we're, we're animals, we're tribal. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that we see in like the general crypto space more broadly is because money is very tribal. So people become tribal about that too. But you need to have some sort of, you know, weight within a group of people that you may be accountable for, but you can also see a direct output from your input. You know, like maybe you're employing some people in your local community that fulfills you, that gives you a good sense of Maybe you want to be a tribal leader or some, you know, idea of a tribal leader in your own head. Like that is incredibly fulfilling. It's more fulfilling than, you know, going out to a club in Vegas or in Miami uh, for a couple nights and kind of ending up, ending up alone. Yeah, I mean, you've been, you've literally been within my community. You've yeah, seen it. Yeah, yeah. That's where I'm happiest. It's it's, it's beautiful, honestly. And it, you know, building something for a small group of people that 
they can get behind and feel happy about. And, you know, one of the things we've been talking about, we were talking about last night, our mayor in Bedford is a fucking moron. He's useless. <laughs> Dave the mayor, honestly, he's fucking useless. And, like, I've been thinking about maybe that's what I should be, not trying to build this mm. podcast and traveling. Like, I should be there in my community doing the job that he can't do and he's doing because nobody else wants it. Maybe yeah. that's what I should be doing. Like, like if you want a legacy, what is it? Do you, do you want your legacy to be as someone famous and successful, like did all this shit, or do you want your legacy to be the change that you made for people? And I think maybe this is another thing coming back to the capitalism. Capitalism and advertising has taught us that the big shiny stuff's important. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think real kind of inner peace and, and uh, contentment comes from what you've done for other people. Are you officially announcing you're running for mayor of Bedford? My official announcement, <laughs> Dave, Dave Lemaire, I'm coming for you, motherfucker. Uh, I want to do it. My, my, my issue, I was actually, if I show you my Google, so I was Googling last night, is it a full-time job and what's involved? What do you actually have to do? And the amount of things I already found, I, I think are absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I think it's close to a full-time job. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Which is a problem. So it has to become in a post-what-Bitcoin-did era. But, uh, but I will... I think it depends on the person. I think uh, I think you would probably make it a full time job, and maybe the person in the current role isn't isn't treating it as a full time job. No, he he's honestly is an idiot. Can I get sued for calling someone an idiot? No. Okay. Well, well you're in a different country right now, so I think it's fine, right? Like international waters. <sighs> no, it doesn't work like that. No. I just. But I think you're saying an idiot is fine. <laughs> I just don't want to get sued again. Um, we'll run it past the lawyers. <laughs> run it past the lawyers. <laughs> Rupert, I'll be okay with this. <laughs> but no, to go back to that, I think you're right. Like affecting affecting change in people's lives is really important. On your podcast, you do it at a massive scale. But I, I really love tactile physical relationships. So there's only a handful of people whose lives you can directly affect in like a truly life-changing way, then that might be more fulfilling. It depends on the person. Well, in some ways, that's, this is goes back to the, the Bitcoin thing. And trying to explain Bitcoin to people, especially I have to do a lot in my local community now because I have this club and we have Bitcoin badge and we're the Bitcoin team, so I have to explain it to them. But the truth is, like most of the people, the question they want to ask is, or they do ask, is now is now a good time to buy? Yeah. Everyone's worried about buying it and it going down. And he wants to buy it, wants to go up. I've been increasingly trying to say to them, the great thing about Bitcoin is the things it teaches you. And it, by the way, I'm always like behind the curve on it a little bit more than other Bitcoiners. But you know, teaching you that appreciation of money or what money is or how it works, how it doesn't work, is super fascinating. I mean, it's been great you know, watching my brother orange pill himself. Mm -hmm. um, my brother is a Bitcoiner now. Like when he first came in, he, you know, he was working with us and he's traditionally on the left and a lot of things he struggled to get his head around. He now gets it. Like he, and, and, it's, I've had to do the same. You have to learn about money. And we, we're in this period of time where everything's fucking breaking. And people keep going, well, the Bitcoiners were right. The Bitcoiners predicted this. The Bitcoiners said this. But also there's this secondary thing where you slow down and you start to realize the important things in life. Again, I'm behind the curve on everyone on this, but you should look after your health. You should eat good food. You know, You should spend time in your community. You should go and see your local farmer. We should stop eating this bullshit food that, that we've been put in front of us and told is okay. You know, all those things that Bitcoin teaches you outside of the gains, I think actually that's in some ways more important. Yeah. Because it structures you towards a better life for you and your family. It gets you away from all the fake bullshit. You had a guest who said it beautifully. I forgot his name. I think it's Bollinger? Logan. Logan yeah. Bollinger, yeah. Mm -hmm. Logan's great. Yeah, he, uh, I was just listening to it yesterday and he said, um, 
uh, Bitcoin allows you to think about things other other than money, or it gives you the opportunity to think about things other than money. And I think yeah. that's right. Um, we you can't you can't plan for generations in the current system. It's impossible. Yeah. And that's also, I mean, just alongside the community aspect, like that is a core part of being human is is wanting to plan and care for your family in this case. And it's impossible to do that today. You have to take a second job as a trader. You have to constantly think about. You know, like your 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 chance of beating inflation, which is getting harder and harder day by day. In some countries, it's actually impossible. Um, so, yeah, I think Bitcoin gives us that opportunity. I can, if I have a long term perspective, I don't have to worry about things that I would have to worry about otherwise, and that is incredibly freeing. And maybe that's what freedom ultimately looks like. Yeah, it's some big, and, and actually, you also have to think about. Or for me, I have to. And I've found really hard discarding things like like an onion, like shedding parts of like my skin of my old life, and there's a lot about to think about with that. First, firstly, it's you know long term common held beliefs. Like I, I'm with somebody who's always loved the role of a journalist in journalism, and coming to the realization that we have very few real journalists left doing proper objective work is mildly depressing. I'm somebody who has absolutely supported democracy for years. It's, we're in a time where it's very hard to support right now, especially in the UK. We've got this fucking idiot as our prime minister. We've got another idiot who's just had his conference recently, Keir Starmer, who's come out with a whole bunch of new policies that Labour are going to put in place. And you realize the cycle's the same. That's, that's a hard skin to shed when you've believed in it for so long. There's so many of these things that it's just, it just it's really difficult to yeah. kind of like go and there's another reason it's difficult is when you start to shed shed these skins and you start talking to your friends about it you sound like a nutter yeah you do like my like bitcoiners think i'm a, a, a status my friends think i'm a nutter they think i'm an absolute crazy person yeah but that's a good place to be that that's um i have this quote that i well i try not to actually live by it but it seems like it inevitably happens where uh, it's uh, society honors its living conformists and its dead troublemakers, Ooh. and I find that who's that from? I don't remember. We can we can look it up. Maybe a, say that again. Society honors its living conformists and its dead troublemakers. Yeah, and it's usually true. Um, you can look at our history. For example, George Washington was kind of hated uh, during you know in his time. Mm. You can look at Gandhi. Hated as well. Now, depending on the people and depending on who you're looking at, but um, yeah, it seems like people that have sort of maybe maybe contradictory or revolutionary ideas are hated by a large group of people because the status quo is comfortable. You're presenting a radical change in how people fundamentally think about everything on a day to day basis, and that's very uncomfortable. And it takes a certain type of person to think that way. Now, this show is brought to you by Gemini, who are also the lead sponsor of my football club, Real Bedford. Now, I am exclusively using Gemini for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I am only buying. It is a time to buy for me. We're hodlers, right? We're hodling through this. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips. They have crushed it with the UX. And with that, I set up my DCA for twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Now, both the app and the website make it really easy for buying and selling Bitcoin. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security from day one. And they are running a special offer for listeners of my podcast, What Bitcoin Did, 
All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in UK and Europe, and they are now expanding globally. And they have this incredible network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know, like me, a whole bunch of you had trouble with finding banking service providers. So if you're looking for a bank who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you're going to want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I am now using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. I remember when I used to use the previous Wasabi, you know, it's a little bit tricky trying to understand how to do a coin join. All that's taken away. It's all done automatically for you. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you never leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so any amount you receive from CoinJoin is totally private. Now, privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently, and with Wasabi 2.0, this makes it so easy. So if you want to find out more, please do go and check out wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today, we have my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. And now, this is a two-day event of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two with top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more can you ask for? And I'm not just promoting it here on my podcast. I'm going to be heading to the event in Austin. I'm going to be in Vegas with Danny, but I'm going to be catching a flight over to Austin to see my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing a very important person on stage. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to hang out. Right. If you want to find out more, please head over to TexasBlockchainSummit.org and use the discount code PeterMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you there. This offer is valid until the end of October, and I hope to see you all down in Austin, Texas. Do you have a favorite quote you ever go to? Uh, I don't have a favorite quote I go to, but one of the things that I do think about all the time is something Mark Moss said on the show where he said, um, what was it? For every new law, every new law, whether good or bad, means less freedom. And I think that's quite good. We talked about that a lot, didn't we? Because mm-hmm. we, we didn't 100% agree with it. No, but it's something I just think about a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't even know how you say this, this journalist's name, so I'm going to pull it up here. Mignon 
Oh, that's why I couldn't remember because I can't pronounce it. A successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. Huh. I have a favorite quote. So, do you know Jiddu Krishnamurti? No. It's like this Indian philosopher. And this one always stays with me, it never leaves me. He said, It is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. <laughs> And I've never actually looked up what he meant by that. Maybe you can look it up. But what it what I read in that is is that if if you're successful in current society, but your success leads to a net negative impact on other people and the planet, have you really been successful? Hmm. Then you have to evaluate what that output is, though, right? That's that's tough. Yeah, I just you know it makes me think directionally. Parts of capitalism have sent us in the wrong direction. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly obvious. Well, for some people, I mean, again, like some, some people like this high time prime for its life. Yeah. But it goes back to the point I was trying to say is like, I'm starting to realize like, I've always wanted to earn and be successful. Yeah. And now I'm at the point of thinking, like, being involved in my community has made me realize I want to be more involved in it. And that's more important than money. And it's taken a long time to get there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is meant to be about you, not me. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Hoseki. Because you've solved a problem for me, dude. Yeah, hopefully. Well, how long? When do we get it? Uh, a couple weeks. Sweet. So, uh, we hold Bitcoin reserves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to be transparent about those Bitcoin reserves on our website for our football club. Um, and the only way I could do that is by... Providing the Z pub. Mm -hmm. What's the Z pub? Uh, right. So <laughs> <laughs> you're such a dick. I fucking hate this stuff. So um, uh, an X pub is the extended public key, which you derive all your all your addresses from. The Z pub is something which I went onto a link that Lot provided me, which I got from my X pub. <laughs> Convert my X pub into a Z pub. I don't fucking know what a Z pub is, Danny. <laughs> What is it? Do you want to go, Sam? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you dig. You don't. Do you know what it is? Uh, it's the uh, it's the thing that it's the key which will um, make all your extended public keys viewable. Correct? Kind of. I'm not going to correct you guys in, in public. Go on. Yeah, yeah do no, it. That's basically it. I mean, I, I mean, we focus on the Xpubs, and most people just use Xpubs. So I finally got my head around Xpubs, and then I was trying to provide the. By the way, welcome to what Bitcoin did. Experts in Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, if you want tech expertise, please go to Stefan Levera's podcast or any other podcast. Um, I, I wanted to provide it, but I couldn't. Uh, people couldn't get the balance from it, mm. and then so I just found some article that said, "No, you have to you have to do it from the Zpub." And I found this tool that uh, Lot provided mm. that you can convert your expert to Zpub. I don't know this stuff. Uh, this stuff gets explained to me, and I for, I forget it. Well, it's it's you know it's low level. This is actually very low level. I mean, I don't think many people are no. It's high about level. Well, it's low level in the sense that it's at the, it's at the core of building blocks, yeah, which yeah. is why it's so why it's so complicated. No, the high level is actually pretty easy. Yeah, well, I've I've got it up there. I've got my so yeah. people can scan it and they can they can confirm that we've got the amount of Bitcoin. Yeah, you heard about this? Yeah. Well, XPub lookups generally are not many block explorers provide that just because it's it's more difficult to uh, to have a functioning block explorer with just XPub lookups purely. Um, and then we got introduced by a mutual friend. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you're talking about proof of reserves. Yeah. We talk about proof of assets, but we're using the terms interchangeably now because, you know, if if certain people understand one brand, it's tough to sort of try and re-engineer that. It's better, kind of better to go with the flow than to try and re reconstruct the whole wheel. Um, so yeah, so our service allows you to do the same thing without having to um, disclose what the XPub is. So it's more of providing you with some level of transparency or with more with more privacy rather. Um, so you can be more private about your wallet details. It's a proof of reserves. Yeah, exactly. What is the problem with exposing the XPub? Well, you may not want to. You may not want that detail out in the world, um, especially for individuals and retail customers. If you have to prove you have Bitcoin to several different counterparties, you're not going to have to leak your wallet details to several different people. So, what what else does it can, it? can it leak other information by making that publicly available? Yeah, you can run analytics. You can look at where the transactions came from, where they're going in perpetuity. So, yeah, it is quite. It, it it can be quite dangerous again, depending on the person in the use case. And is that the same with the Z puppy in public? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, I don't mind it with the football club right. because all we do is hold the Bitcoin. We've not moved any. We're not spending any. It's a company. And when I read that, I was like, well, I'm, I'm totally fine with this." Um, but as an individual, I would definitely not want that public. Yeah. And so the way your tool does it is how? So it's uh, basically it's giving us the information. And then us giving a check mark to whoever the counterparties are. So in that sense, you're not doxing to n. You're not doxing to 100 or 1,000 people. Uh, it's to one, and we provide that verification. So um, it's private in the sense that you're not having to give that detail to you know 100 people. Um, we will simply take on the burden of giving that verification as long as they trust us. Right. Okay. And so the opportunity here is like okay, it's great for me um, because I'm going to do a proof of reserves, but like. I don't think there's a huge amount of companies who are going to need to do that, make that a long-term viable commercial business for you. That's not where the real opportunity is, right? No, this is really showcasing what the product can do. Yeah. There's a bunch of different applications. We, you know, we sort of see it as this bottom stack of the Bitcoin standard stack of the future. Okay. Um, proof of ownership is sort of a basic characteristic of any asset class, be it stocks, bonds, or whatever else. Which is why I love what we're building because I can explain this to anyone, Bitcoiner or not, and they'll understand it. Um, a function of building a Bitcoin company, and I think any company is you're an evangelist of the thing and the technology, in this case, Bitcoin. So anyone running a Bitcoin company has to evangelize Bitcoin. But in my case, I don't have to, actually. It's just, look, you need to prove, you, you have this asset, you need to prove you own it. Um, you need some kind of framework around it. What are the scenarios, though, where people will need to prove they own it? Yeah, I mean, it's already happening now. It's the, Our go-to-market was mortgages. Okay. Um, and that was my problem. Uh, you're self-custodying your assets. Uh, you need to prove to a broker that you have Bitcoin. Um, but how do you do that? You could maybe take a screenshot of like your Trezor UI or whatever software or whatever wallet you're using. Which you can fake the fuck out you of. You can fake it. It's also very primitive and crude. Um, and also, like, we have, we're on the bleeding edge of technology, but we're relegated to taking screenshots. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, or, and if they don't, if they don't dismiss you outright, uh, they ask you to send your funds to Coinbase, for example, and print out a statement. But again, like you're self-custodying. That's antithetical to the reason why you're self-custodying in the first place. Yeah, and Coinbase will then take that information and pass it over to right. other third parties, right. which you don't want to do as a Bitcoiner. Exactly. Maybe. So that's our that's been our go-to-market, but residency applications has been a big one. People trying to use this jurisdictionless asset to be global citizens. Um, and even things in the judicial realm as well. Um, we're helping one user... Uh, Prove he has funds in order to support his case for getting custody of his kids, for example. Um, one of his assets is Bitcoin. Right. The idea isn't to have people extend you credit just because you happen to have Bitcoin at this 
point in time, like at this stage of like maturation of the asset, it's more of having your Bitcoin play as a financial data point. Right now, you, if you have it in cold storage, it's, it is a shiny rock. Um, it's amazing. You should sit on it. Uh, but there isn't anything else you can do short of selling it or moving it. Um, and I don't think that should be the case. And you're essentially building this out in preparation for the direction the financial world is heading in. Exactly. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because you said, I'm pretty sure if I got a mortgage in the UK and I had to prove my assets, at the moment no one would accept Bitcoin as a, an asset they would approve of, as a proof of that I can afford something, right? But in the US, you are starting to see that transitional change. Mm-hmm. Like Bitcoin is starting to integrate into. My, I mean, my sponsor, Ledin, they have a mortgage product now, which right. is Bitcoin based as well. Like, um, who is it? Bill Barhart was talking about it as well. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see that the asset from certain people in certain areas is being respected. Didn't even, if, if, I mean, Goldman Sachs even got a product now for borrowing against Bitcoin. I think they announced something, yeah. Silvergate have. We know Silvergate are Bitcoin friendly, but they have a product. Like we're starting to see that transition, I think, a bit more here, less so in the UK. I mean, you can barely find a bank account in the UK that will allow you to have Bitcoin. Yeah. But so you're starting to see that change that some institutions are accepting that. Yeah, we are. And we're partnering with Ledin as an example. We love them over there. Um, yeah, we are. And, and and it's also not as daunting as you might expect because the incentives are aligned at least in the mortgage use case the broker wants you to get approved so they're going to try and support you however they can in order to get you approved because that's how they get paid um oftentimes you'll be surprised all they want is something that looks official which in our case is literally just a bank-like looking statement so someone connects her treasure connects her cold card connects whatever wallets they have or exchange accounts and then prints out a statement for the last three months that shows their beginning monthly balance or ending monthly balance, and then all of the line items, which would be Coinbase, Kraken, uh, and then randomized account numbers for those wallets. So, for example, they don't ever get your address or your XPUB. They get some randomized account number because they don't need or want that level of detail. All they want is some bank-like looking statement with a letterhead, your name and address, and your assets listed, which is what we provide now. In dollar value. Well, both the Bitcoin and the dollar value. Both Bitcoin yeah, and the dollar yeah. value. So the next thing, obviously, is to add more currencies. So they're ticking a box. Yeah. What other currencies? Um, no, like like different. Uh, so pound, okay, euro. Yeah, 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 of course. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to need the pound, man. Yeah, exactly. Um, and very soon, you could just do an instant conversion one to one because we know that's how much a pound yeah, is going to be worth. It, yeah. Fucking <laughs> sick. That must have been a like super cheap holiday for you. Yeah, it was over there when it was happening, and my family was losing their mind, but I was secretly sort of smiling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been crazy to see what's been happening in the UK. But like, all my American friends are coming and they're like, "We're going to come to the UK. It's super cheap at the moment." I'm like, "Yeah, it's not for ch- super cheap for me to come to you." Yeah, I don't know if it'll last either. I don't know. I don't know. Ah, uh, we're going to talk to. Couple of people that, about that very soon. Um, there's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, we've jumped around a little bit here. Uh, well, actually, just before we f- let's finish up with Hoseki. Like, mm-hmm. tell people where to check it out anyway. Just like, and, and is the product available commercially yet? Uh, in two weeks, it'll be it'll be good. Fully commercially yeah. out there. So we have. I mean, now you can sign up um, on the wait list, and then if you email me, I can grab you onto our alpha. So you can you can do what I'm describing now today. Yeah. Uh, but you'll be able to sign up and do it without a private alpha link in two weeks. Wow. Yeah. How long has it taken to get this far? Um, well, we it's been about a year total. There's a lot of infrastructure that has to get built out. It, it sounds simple when you describe it, but honestly, it's, um, for example, we, we, we didn't want to use third parties. Right. So everything we had to build was in-house. Um, and that took a while and took a lot of thought. So it's been about a year. Uh, I also like the thing about your company is that you don't really just look like a Bitcoin company. You, you just look like a tech startup. 
Okay. Like a software business, like a SaaS. Okay. Which I think is uh, directionally where I think some of the Bitcoin companies are heading, which I think is a good thing. I think it, it reflects where Bitcoin is going to, where we are just becoming part of the kind of mainstream financial system. Yeah. Which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. I, I love Bitcoin culture. I just don't know if that's um, applicable to the world as a whole. There's a lot of different sort of things in the world, and you should probably try and combine that in your company. So we try and look friendly. That's, yeah. that's sort of the branding. What, is, what does the name mean? Hoseki? Yeah. Um, it's a nod to Nick Zabo's article, Shelling Out. Okay, yeah. Uh, it means jewelry. Huh. Um, people see Bitcoin as different things. I, I kind of see it as jewelry. Um, so in the past, different civilizations would use, you know, as you know, different, different things for money, and um, seashells were used at one point. Yeah. So in Massachusetts, the Narragansett used wampum belts. These were belts that were created with seashells. And that had a very slow velocity of money. It, it, it transferred hands when tribes would unify, when babies were born, when marriages would happen. Um, and that's kind of how I see Bitcoin's block time. I see that 10-minute finality as actually being incredibly fucking important. And it's not something trivial. And this idea that, yeah, we can kind of use Bitcoin for every transaction, I think, is a little bit short-sighted. And so I see it as like this incredibly momentous thing every time a block is added, sort of like when these seashells would transfer hands. Um, but also, if you look at India, gold back lending, gold jewelry back lending was up, I think, 200 some percent last year. Wow. Versus regular lending, which is up like 8%. Mm-hmm. Um, different societies use jewelry as money uh, oftentimes as well. Have you been to India? No. It's, it's an amazing country. Really? Yeah, it's up there with probably my three favorite places I've ever been. I absolutely loved it. And uh, I was in Goa. And I went up to like the little local town. Is that in the south? Yes, I think it's the south um, southwest. Okay, we check that for me, Danny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was a it was short. It wasn't too long a flight from Mumbai, and uh, a beautiful place. Amazing people. Again, great food uh, and cows on the beach, which was really <laughs> weird. Um, the the friend, literally the friendliest people you'll ever meet. Uh, people just stop and talk to you. They just want to talk to you and find out who you are and what you're about. But you go into the, the town and the number of uh, like jewelers was incredible. They, they were just everywhere. And, um, you know, because this is the way people pass down their inheritance, right? right. It's the gold that they, they buy the gold, they hold the gold. They're pretty smart people. They know what they're doing with the shit. That's, that's their Bitcoin. Exactly. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend going there. So do you think in the future people lend out against your Bitcoin at different rates depending on where you're holding it? I think not just that, it's that you can actually get a better rate because you can prove that you can pay it because you have transparency over the ownership. But do you think if, so the lenders will give you a different rate, whether it's on Coinbase or like in your own, <clears throat> sorry, cold storage is what I mean, like because they'll trust the, they'll have a, a different trust model for each of those places? Possibly. I mean, I can see it going that route. I don't immediately think it'll go that route, at least not yet, because um, it's still kind of poorly understood by the lender, unless you have a sophisticated lender. So if you have like a Ledin, for example, they know what they're doing. But yeah. for regular normie lenders, I, they don't understand the concepts of you know holding your own keys. Mm. Um, that's just poorly understood at this point. So maybe, mm. maybe. Interesting. Is there anything I've not asked you about with Hoseki that you want to talk about? Um. It, yeah, we could go that route, but again, it depends on how much time you have. I've got plenty of time. You tell me. Uh, sure. Just on like... Are you supporting Lightning? Um, no. No. Never? We're looking at it. But, but then I guess 
I guess when people have to prove their reserves, they're probably not going to need to prove their two hundred dollars of lightning. It's probably not going to make. It that depends much of a on difference. depends on who the counterparty is, but yeah, yeah, generally no. And is it because it's just too complicated to do right now? It's quite complex. I mean, lightning doesn't have a topology, so it's difficult to figure those things out. So yeah, it doesn't it doesn't naturally give you an ability to audit it the same way Bitcoin does. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what did you want to cover then? Because I've got time. I guess the idea that we're sort of uh, like Bitcoiners, kind of our third world citizens, like these digital third world citizens, yeah. is what I've been focused on. Um, I don't think we see it that way, but I think definitely think we are. We Explain have, that. Well, this thing's new. It's incredibly, yeah, we've made a lot of progress in the last couple of years, but it's still very mechanical. Um, there isn't like great experiences around using it, especially in self custody. Um, we have our own political and civil sort of strife and problems and. Uh, you know, we've had mass migrations of people coming in and people leaving, um, and uh, and yeah, just uh, people have been exiled. People have yeah been exiled by you know mobs and also by individuals. Um, so I I really see us as third world citizens, and more importantly, uh, we have the same financial problems as the third world does, in the sense that we don't have a good way of representing our assets. Um, so there's a book that I've read called um, The Mystery of Capital. And that describes why, in this author's opinion, um, the global south or third world, whatever you want to call it, is incredibly poor as it relates to uh, the West, so North America, Europe, and Japan. And um, you know, it's got nothing to do with IQ or market orientation or your culture. Because if you go to some of these countries, if you go to Turkey and you go to a bazaar in Turkey, you're going to get hassled by entrepreneurial people. All, you know, your entire entire journey. Um, they're incredibly industrious, but the problem is, is they actually don't have a way to. Uh, represent their assets. Um, they don't have property rights built in, and Bitcoin has that. That's the one thing Bitcoin does really well is that it's it, it has these property rights that allow you to enforce the fact that you do own Bitcoin. And so that's what I'm most focused on is building a great wrapper and experience around that. Um, much like multi-sig companies, you can make a multi-sig custody regime without these companies. It's just it just isn't a good experience. Nope, at all. <laughs> I've looked at it. Yeah. There's zero chance I could do it. It's, if I did, I would fuck it up, and most likely I'd lose my Bitcoin. It's dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous. It is dangerous. Whereas Casa Unchained have built great products right, right. for people to be able to not fuck it up. Now, luckily for expression of ownership in Bitcoin, it's not dangerous because you're not moving funds, but it's still not easy. It's not, it's not well understood. Um, I realized that when I was writing the paper on proof of reserves, and I just thought this is an incredibly underutilized part of the system. Well, you've literally seen me try to do this without <laughs> knowing there's a product that exists. And you can go, hi, Pete, I can help you with this. We've got a product. I'm like, great. Well, you did the best thing you could have done with the tools available. Yeah. Um, we're just now building better tooling in order to make it easier. And commercially, like, how does this going to work for you guys? Well, we're building this tool for both retail and for um, companies as well. So bigger companies would have you know, a bigger need in terms of lending agreements, uh, again, with respect to who their counterparties are. Uh, we see this as like an integration platform into different services. So you need to quickly prove you have Bitcoin on Rocket Mortgage. Well, we're plugged in. You can quickly just do that with us. Um, there's a load of commercial models that can be developed if this infrastructure exists. Um, so yeah, we're not tethered to one thing necessarily. Uh, did you meet Jeremy earlier? Yeah. Jeremy is a, is a Bitcoiner, mm. but he's really a DID maximalist. And okay. I can imagine him during all of this interview thinking, huh, can you use this for proof of identity? 
Yeah, I mean, you, you can. That's not something I promoted thus far just because the idea of like an address being your identity, I don't think is, I mean, maybe it's a good outcome. I don't really, I don't necessarily see it. I think we're layers away from identity, but it is like we are building a stack of that. Yeah, because we do, do have this problem at the moment where when we have to provide identity, we're giving away data that can be mm. used and exploited. Right. Yeah, our, right. Pri- our privacy is destroyed continually. I mean, we're at the point where we just don't really have privacy anymore. Digitally, none at all. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing I'm most excited about is uh, is applying this to a community banking model, which sort of goes back to my city states um, idea. Um, I, I I fundamentally view every single person who holds their own keys as an institution. I mean, we call ourselves banks. Yeah. Again, maybe I was scammed coming into Bitcoin when I was told that you can be your own bank, but I don't have any banking services. Like I'm my own bank, the funds are there, but I, again, I can't do anything. I can't do much with it. Yeah, I know. Um, Chris over at uh, Level was trying to do this. He was trying to break that mold, and I know other people have have been trying to do it. Is there any kind of link to Fedimint with this then? Because you talk about community banking. Possibly, I I think at like a cultural level, um, their model is complicated to conduct proof of reserves, which is why they haven't done it thus far. Right. Um, I know they're working on it, and if we can help, we definitely will. Um, but I. I think the one thing that differentiates this type of community banking versus like the wildcat banking in the US in the 1800s is the auditability factor. Yes. Like you can have different, um, again, like you effectively are a country by having a treasure, is kind of how I see it. Like I, I see this like massive redistribution of wealth from nation states to individuals at this like quote unquote city state model. So essentially, banking is just going to become a peer to peer model. Peer to peer, yeah. I mean, it is peer to peer because Bitcoin's peer to peer. Yeah. Um, it'll just be now accessible to like many more people than than it is than it is today. And the fact that you can audit each thing is what differentiates it from things of the past. And that's a critical aspect of the protocol that again just isn't really. Uh, I think it's I, I think it's incredibly underutilized. And so, have you found when building this company that you have been discovering new ideas and new applications? By virtue of just building, yeah, I mean that and talking to people, and it's it's really important to to discuss your ideas. I think I think we get into this trap of like you know I'm building something I need to just like focus and keep my head down and sort of uh, sort of realize my vision. But at the same time, like everything is synergistic. You have ideas at the same rate and time. Other people have ideas, um, and you hear from other people, and that influences your ideas. So yeah, I've learned, and I've I mean things have sort of pivoted slightly and and, and taken different and gone on different tangents, um, and all that's been really really helpful for our product. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kept its same core premise, um, but the way it manifests itself has changed over time. Awesome, man. Well, listen, look, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, where should we send them? Uh, www.hoseki.app um, or on Hoseki app on Twitter, uh, or you can follow me, Sam Abasi, on Twitter. Well, listen, I appreciate getting to know you. Thank you for coming to see my team. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting proof of reserves up on our website um, as soon as possible because we want to show that to people. Um, and I'm excited for you to get this launched to people start using it. Um, I think you've got a bright future, man, and it's just great to get to know you. Yeah, thanks so much. I did, take care. All right there, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Sam. Please do go and check out Hoseki. We're going to be implementing it on the Rail Bedford website so we can do a proof of reserves for the Bitcoin we'll hold in our treasury and float. Um it's a real shame I didn't get longer to chat with Sam. I'll probably get him back on the show. Uh, it's just a very easy conversation talking about a whole bunch of issues. Me usually coming from the UK mindset, him more of a 
American mindset, and it's kind of good to share ideas, how things work in different countries. I always enjoy those types of conversations. He's also got some fascinating insights into how Bitcoin can help correct the economic harm of US imperialism, something I think that was originally what we were going to speak about. That's what Danny said. But obviously, me being me, we just waffled on a whole bunch of other shit. <laughs> so I'm going to get back on the show. We'll go and get into all that another time. Anyway, listen, I've kind of got to go to bed. I'm going to finish this beer. Buzzing man, Rail Bedford, 12 points clear, another win. Excellent stuff. Any of you following the football, thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Hope you have a great rest of your week, and I will see you all on Friday. If you've got any questions about this show, anything else, you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com.